So for the guided metta meditation, please let your attention come to your heart center, center of your chest. And just take a few breaths in and out right through your heart center. Breathing in, breathing out of the heart. Breathing in the blessings and the loving kindness that fill the world right in through your heart, into you, into your very deepest heart. and exhaling out blessings of loving-kindness out of your heart. (coughs) Sometimes I remind you, we do this type of meditation and we feel feelings of love or compassion, and sometimes we don't. We just practice. We breathe in and out through the heart just to remind ourselves, oh yeah, my heart, just to drop in to the point of view of the heart. You can let your breathing be regular now. And I want you to let someone come to your mind who you may have a little issue with, not a huge one, certainly not the big one, but just somebody, usually it's one of our best friends or our whoever we're closest to, that we might have just a little something that we are holding, some little resistance, resentment, or something. Let that person come to your mind now, into your heart, and imagine them in front of you, And if you're not comfortable having them right in front of you, you can imagine them out at 20 or 50 feet. It doesn't matter. But there they are. And here you sit. And allow your center of gravity, your attention, to drop if it isn't already into your heart, as though your thoughts, your mindfulness comes from the heart. 
And as you look at this individual, silently say their name to yourself and I forgive you. for whatever way you've created suffering for yourself and myself and others, whether intentional or unintentional, I open my heart in forgiveness to you. It's possible that the truth may be, I am willing to learn to forgive you. But if you don't see their image, really imagine them here. And just try these words. Their name. And then I forgive you. I'm willing to forgive you. I'm willing not necessarily to invite you back into my home, but definitely into my heart. I'm not necessarily forgiving your actions, but I'm opening my heart in forgiveness to you, the actor. And as you're looking at this person, see if you can look at them through the eyes of compassion. Just looking through the heart. And it won't be too hard to see where their harmful actions came from. They were somehow harmed or wounded or afraid in some way at some time. They grew somehow protected or defensive, wounded. And from the eyes of compassion, you can see that. And you can have compassion for some way that they've been hurt or that they have suffered. My friend, I care for your struggles and suffering. Although I cannot take on your suffering, I care that you have suffered. And I wish for you whatever kind of healing would help you to never have to harm yourself or others again. 
I sincerely wish for your happiness and well-being. I forgive you. Keep breathing as you do this. Just seeing what happens. What happens in the body and mind. Saying their name from your heart. And I forgive you. And I send you well wishes for your own healing and wholeness. I'm willing to let it go. I'm willing to learn to be in the process of letting it go. May you be healed and may you be whole. And then take a deep breath And on the exhalation, let go of that individual. Really let them go with blessings. Adios. Go with God. Away. So that again you're sitting in this sacred temple, in your own space. It may take two breaths to let them go. Let them go. And now, I would like you to be aware of the ways that you may sometimes be judging or harsh to yourself. That sometimes we all create suffering for ourselves. Silently try these words. I forgive myself. I forgive myself for the ways that I have created suffering for myself and others, whether intentional or unintentional. I'm willing now to forgive myself. I'm willing to open my heart to myself, even though I, like every other human, have made mistakes. I forgive myself. 
See what that feels like. And now look at yourself from the eyes of great compassion. Can you see you from that point of view? Compassion is just holding you. Wanting you to come home. Compassion to the ways you've harmed yourself. The ways you judge yourself. The ways we all judge ourselves. Push yourself. Reject our experience. Great compassion. To the ways we leave ourselves. We get so frightened. We've been wounded. We learned certain ways to protect ourselves. And now it's time to see that whole thing with so much compassion and forgiveness. To finally take yourself into your own arms, into the arms of great kindness. Allow yourself to be held now in great kindness, especially the part of you who thinks she doesn't deserve it, whoever that is, is who needs it the most. And keep breathing, great loving kindness to myself, great compassion to how scared I get or how Stuck I get sometimes. Keep breathing. And sometimes the... It's as though there's a wall or a shield that's just determined not to let the great compassion in. Sometimes we feel it in or around our body, our head like a numbness, like a solidness, like a a certainty that I'm separate from that love. And if, if it feels that it helps you connect, you can very gently take your hands and place them on the place in your body that needs the most love. Remembering the Buddha said, learn to hold yourself as you would hold your only child. Let that much kindness and tenderness be in your hands now as you just hold whichever part of you needs it the most. 
And if there is a wall in you that says, no way, love cannot come here, hold that wall in infinite love and compassion. Great love to these parts of ourself that feel so tight and so separate, so convinced of their separateness. Holding yourself as you would hold your most precious, beloved child (coughs) with infinite patience and forgiveness and just breathing, breathing fully. I hold myself in love and I'm allowing myself to be loved right now just as I am. It's not when I get better, when I get smarter, when I get to be a better meditator, then I can be loved. It's allowing yourself to be loved even in the most tightest separate places. It's allowing forgiveness in. Great love to yourself. And you can allow your hands to gently come back to your lap. Sometimes when we do this, we feel, we really feel an opening to ourselves, And sometimes we feel the wall. And the work is to have room for all of that and to never give up. Because someday the truth will be larger than that wall which is conditioned. So great loving kindness to yourself. the greatest wish, whatever would be the best wishes that you could wish for yourself, for happiness and wholeness and freedom, wish those for yourself. Opening your heart to yourself. And then I would like you to just imagine this beautiful circle of women and all of the the blessings that are here and 
incredible forest and the meadows that surround us and all the deers and all the creatures and just imagine, try to even comprehend the love that's holding this whole thing in place. The silent, infinite love. As the poets say, that keep the stars in their place. That every enlightened being has guaranteed us of, and that most of us have touched here and there. And just imagine that surrounding this circle. And again, breathe that in through your heart, for yourself, into your whole body. May I be filled, literally filled, with the blessings of loving-kindness. Breathing out blessings, but really be aware of the inhale. This great touch of love, breathing it in to your body, into your bloodstream, into your organs. May I be filled with healing love, Breathing it in and knowing you as every other being everywhere, you deserve this. Breathe it in. Fill your body, your skin, your bones with this blessing. Your mind. Breathing in love breathing it out. The Buddha said you could look the whole world over and not find anyone more deserving of love than yourself. So breathe it in. Let it fill you. Let it surround you. Let it heal you. May I be filled with loving-kindness. Every cell filled with love. Every thought And then imagine this circle of women just glowing with loving-kindness. Each one filled with loving-kindness. That's silent, that's quiet, that connects everything. And then from this circle, we complete the metta by imagining this glow 
of this circle glowing out in all directions with the wish that all beings everywhere would be filled with loving-kindness. Imagine it, see it, feel it, wish it. May all beings come home to their own great heart of loving-kindness. And may we all have the deep and certain experience that we are not other than, we are not separate from infinite love. May all beings be free. The first time I asked uh, this woman, Wayan, to give me a massage, I, I, I uh, realized that she was spreading out her Balinese cloth, one of these little cloths, uh, on a mat right uh, where everything was happening, in the middle of everything. And I thought, oh, no, this is not what I want. And so I took the mat and I dragged it across the courtyard to a place that was a little away from everything. I said, here. (laughs) She said, okay. So after a few days of this, um, I realized that not only was I taking her away from her circle of women with whom she made offerings and gave massages, but also that I was missing an important part of the healing that was offering, that was offered. An important aspect of the healing was that I was being invited into this circle where uh, these women were sitting together. And so um, I, uh, I began to um, just lie down in the middle of them <laughs> and listening to their beautiful voices. You know, it wasn't actually distracting. I didn't know what they were talking about. It was just like birds singing. Once I surrendered and relaxed and let myself be held by that circle. At some point, I began to feel the poignancy of how connected they were and the contrast of how isolated we are in our work and what we do 
most of us do most of the time. And, um, and something so obvious, obviously um, natural as a massage, how isolated that is usually, that experience usually is. I said to them one day, you know, I noticed that you do everything together. And they looked at me like, like either they didn't understand my words or they didn't understand the significance of what I was saying. I realized that, you know, I don't know their language, but I wonder if they have a word for together. Maybe it is so integral to their lives, their village lives, that they don't need to distinguish between together and not together. It's just is. It just is their lives. I asked them one time, I actually started to feel a little uncomfortable after about the 15th massage. (laughs) Thought, maybe I should offer them a massage. (laughs) So instead of that, which seemed a little too intimate, I said, do you ever massage each other? And they said, they looked at each other and then they said, "Um, oh yes, when we're sick. When we're sick, we massage each other. I said, ah, when sick. And then I thought, I think I need to explain to them why I need 20 massages. (laughs) (laughs) And so (laughs) I started to think, oh, now how am I going to describe, how am I going to explain stress? (laughs) And so I started to, um, you know, say, oh, we drive a lot. Mm, driving, driving. And they started laughing at me. <laughs> and I thought, oh, Balinese women don't drive. I mean, not only do they not drive, they don't go anywhere. I mean, they just don't go. They just stay where they are. The whole concept of driving, the whole concept of, you know, doing this, you know, how, they don't do this. They just, they walk from place to place. They carry things on their head. They don't, they don't, uh, Oh, the younger ones wear, ride motorcycles now. Some of the older ones, the professionals. Then I thought, ah, oh, computers. I had seen a computer in a restaurant, so I thought maybe they understand that. And then I realized, no, these women don't live in, these women don't work in restaurants. They, they sit under the palm trees. So I gave that up. The Balinese people do not seem to ever be in a hurry. Um, there don't seem to be any emergencies. Um, we were there for a month. We never heard a siren of any kind. And we were in the biggest, we were in the towns. We almost uh, missed our plane because there was a full moon ceremony. And at every full moon, new moon, new, new year's, and anything else they can think of to celebrate, everything stops. And Everything had stopped, and they had closed the main street of the town. So uh, as we were going to the airport, it turns out that the street was closed, and so we had to go all through all the back streets. It was the only time we ever saw a Balinese person rush, uh, and our driver uh, did get us to the airport on time. But um, I think the primary thing that I... Uh, want to say tonight is that there is an, uh, an honoring of 
the elemental energies of, the, of life, an honoring of life, um, which uh, was profound for me. There is um, a forest dedicated to monkeys. It's called a monkey forest. And there is a stone temple for the monkeys. They have their own temple. They have their own forest. There is another temple, which is a cave, for um, Ganesh, the Ganesh, the elephant. The elephant temple is there. And there is a cave uh, and a temple for bats. Thousands of bats are there. And I, I think it was at the bat cave that I finally realized, you know, the bats were here first. These people have built a temple to honor bats and to keep them safe. This temple keeps them safe. You can't, go, you can't go into this area unless you are wearing the sacred garments, the temple robe, the temple sash. And um, unless you're going in with reverence, you can't enter this area. Those bats are safe. Those bats are incredibly honored. It just, you know, this was, I think, probably one of the moments when my mind was thoroughly blown because I realized there's no, I couldn't think of a parallel in our culture of that level of of honoring. So, to skip a few stories and get to the the point here, um, in Bali, with its its ancient stones and and its relaxed rhythm, I had an opportunity to remember how uh, this. Um, the state of, of oneness, of interconnectedness with life in all of its forms, this, uh, this honoring of life, this understanding of the nature of life, is actually um, a natural state, that it is not a special, it doesn't need to be a special experience or a special state, but it's actually a very natural state which doesn't need to be in any way separate from my life. Um, And now, having had that very uh, dramatic, rather uh, powerful reminder, coming back, um, I realize that I can more easily and more often have that same experience um, just looking at the round hills of Spirit Rock or seeing the wildflowers growing in my front yard, I can have that feeling of, oh, this, this is a moment of that, of that knowing, of that natural state of connection with life. So that's part one. Part two. Well, before we left for um, Bali, we noticed that there were piles of sawdust on the floor in Sophie's room. 
And, um, well, I have to go back a little bit. Some of you were here last year and you, have, you heard that we were about to buy a house. We bought the house. Um, and Ajahn Amro thought I should tell the story of the lady from the phone company because he likes it. And <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I, I can remember most of it. So um, for those of you who didn't hear the lady from the phone company, this is actually my darshan with the lady from the phone company. Um, well, I was a little overwhelmed by the idea of buying a house. It, it was a, sort of a, a, a sudden decision. And I was a bit overwhelmed. And one day I thought, okay, I can do one more discrete task. And I looked at my list and I said, okay, I will call the phone company and make sure that we can keep the same number. Um, I'm sure we can. We're only moving just a little ways in the same neighborhood, same town. How could we not have the same phone number? So um, I began to look up the, the number to find out if we could keep the same number. And I I thought, does it, you know, the phone company should be able to list things separately. I mean, they don't have to pay separate for their separate listings. <laughs> Finally, after going through voice, I don't know, their voicemail? The phone company has a voicemail? I don't understand this. I, I eventually got someone on the phone. By the time I got her on the phone, I was remembering Lily Tomlin, for those of you who are old enough to remember, you know, the phone company, the lady from the phone company, and she says... We don't care. We don't have to care. We're the phone company. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I was expecting Lily Tomlin on the phone. So I expected Lil- Lily Tomlin. I wasn't exactly feeling a lot of love and kindness in my heart at that moment. I was actually pretty angry about having to spend all this time because I really didn't have the energy for only one discrete task, and I just used up my energy on this trying to find the phone number. So anyway, to, to make a long story short, I said, can we keep the phone number? She said, I can answer that question. No. (laughs) I said, why? And then we had a rather extended interaction. And finally I said, okay, so what's it going to cost? What's this going to cost? She said, "Um," said, $79.23. I said, to change our phone number? She said, no, that's for this consultation. I said, what? She said, no, 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 I'm just kidding. She said, you seem a little tense. She said, you seem like you need, uh, needed a wake-up call. You seem a little tense. You seem like you needed a wake-up call. I said, is this the phone company? <laughs> I said, actually, you know, I really am tense. You see, we're buying this house, and I don't know if we should buy the house. (laughs) And my mother-in-law is going to move in with us, and I don't know if she should move in with us. I mean, yeah, and, you know, I just just was hoping that one thing could stay the same. (laughs) And she said, you know, sometimes you just have to let go. I said, thank you. (laughs) So um, anyway, we came back from Bali in May, and the experts came in and said, we recommend 
that you tent your house because you have dry wood termites. Um, and I said, what does that mean? She's, he said, well, <clears throat> we put a big tent over your house. Like a, I said, oh, you mean like a circus tent? She, he said, yes, that kind of tent. And then we fill it up with poison gas, which will kill every living thing in your house. I said, what? <laughs> I said, this is a good thing? <laughs> um, <laughs> I said, you do this on purpose? <laughs> well, you know, to, to cut to the chase, um, Jonathan said, you know, what would they do in Bali? Uh, you know, they have a lot of wood carvings. They make wood carvings all the time in Bali. And they assume that they are impermanent. They assume that wood is impermanent. And, you know, it doesn't like last for 50 years or something. It just eventually rots. Or something happens to it. And then they make more wood carvings. He said, well, maybe they would just let the houses all fall down and then just build another one. And so I asked Sophie what she thought of that approach. <laughs> she said, we could do that. It might take a long time. And, you know, once our house fell down, then where would we live? <laughs> I said, right. <laughs> anyway, um, the, to make a long story short, um, while we are here at the family retreat, in case I seem a little distracted, there's a house in Sacramento with a tent over it. And um, the, the week before we came here, I spent the entire week taking everything every living thing out of my house. And because of the way I see life, that was a lot of stuff. <laughs> I took almost every thing out of the house. Sophie, um, who already loves ritual before we went to Bali, and now, between going to Bali and starting to take Aikido, she's you know bowing to everything. And... Um, and I, I noticed that her, um, her uh, ritual making had speeded up over the last few weeks since we decided to do this. You know, and her, um, you know, saging the house and giving flower offers, offerings to the goddesses inside and out. And, um, uh, and her little prayers, you know, she did a little, a little prayer here, uh, blessing our house and may our house be okay and... Um, so in our own way, we're all just uh, wishing all those living beings well in their next life. But it is a very um, a confusing thing to live in this culture and to live in this, on this planet. Um, and so as a householder, as a holder of that particular house, which is is the house that I hold right now. Um, you know, I'm just right in the middle of it. There's not an end to the story. There's not an end to it. And um, so I, I told Ajahn Amarov I was going to do this. <laughs> There's no end to this story. So I'm going to pass the mic over. <laughs> do you have your own over there? Uh, yeah. And also, uh, Noah told me that we would have to 
uh, pick our children up tonight down in the lower meditation hall. So when I ring the bell for Ajahn Amaro to stop talking, you won't be, you won't think I'm being impolite. It's just, uh, shall I, I give you a finish. five? Um, I do want to finish. We have to leave here at 25 after. Shall I ring the bell at 20 after and give you five minutes to end your sentence? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I have a reputation to maintain. <laughs> no wife, no children, but a reputation to support. <laughs> so, uh, There's probably a, a few things to um, to reflect on. Um, today's theme of of uh, hatred and uh, its its antidote of uh, loving kindness. And uh, and Julie suggested that I work in some kind of non-dualistic uh, salsa into the mix. <laughs> So I'll, I'll just uh, work around those themes for a little while. I think what Julie was, was describing, you know, there's some. Um, we had a similar uh, experience up at the uh, monastery. Um, we had a, a, a big cockroach infestation. This was uh, simultaneous with um, Barbara's piece on the Vajra goddess from Vector Control. So we can see we're all in this together. We are. <laughs> that was such a great title. You know, you had to read the article. You know, it was a, the I did read the article. Yeah, <laughs> but the the title itself said so much. It was a, it was great about uh, Barbara's own experiences with having to, um, uh, in a way, live in the world of of, uh, of violence and. Um, you know, it's it's a, a a difficult thing. It's a heartbreaking thing to um, to be in these kind of dilemmas, where you know your your heart is dedicated to the the welfare of all beings, but yet, which beings uh, are we dedicated to, and how do we make a priority? How do we choose? Um, so we ended up. Um, you know, with, with our cockroaches and uh, the um, trying this and trying that and trying this and trying that and finally we were um, brought to the same kind of of conclusion as as Julie that uh, we we did all kinds of research and consulted with all sorts of people and found out basically there's no way around it you know we have to bring in the uh, the exterminators and um, and so you know it was. There was a lot of community meetings and discussions of how to do this and, and what was appropriate. And so we um, we did a few days of chanting beforehand and encouragement to the uh, the local cockroach <laughs> local cockroach gods to uh, have words with their subjects to uh, you know if they value you know, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, move house <laughs> now. And uh, we did all, uh, gave all of our best wishes and, and goodwill, and then you know, got in the, the Vajra goddesses from Vector Control to, <laughs> to do their thing. 
and then um, also had to install a whole regime of, of, uh, of keeping everything dry and clean and had to bought cartloads of Tupperware. And so it actually made our kitchen much, much tidier and neater into the bargain. But it's a, it's a difficult thing. You know, it pains the heart. And this, you know, these examples are, 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 in a way, it's interesting how kind of Julie put the forth the, the two elements of like the, the sort of harmonious life in Bali, and then the um, you know the poison gas in Sacramento. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel as a kind of counterpoint to each other. Um, and uh, and they and they are in some respects. But I think you know the, where it, where it comes from, where, where the, both those, these things come from, it's really the same place of trying to find a way of living, uh, being with the the, uh, the living world that we are a part of, it's, uh, that we're enmeshed in, that we are, and matching that against the. Uh, the purity of the heart, or the aspirations of the heart. You know, how do those two things fit together? Because on the one hand, we have this of um, the loving, intrinsic loving kindness for all beings, and the um, the kind of uh, attunement to the natural world. And on the other hand, we have the um, the issues of like the house being eaten, or the <laughs> the cockroaches kind of getting past the half million mark. You know. <laughs> Some of the statistics they put out are absolutely amazing. If you take one cockroach, she doesn't even need a partner. <laughs> one one cockroach, they just need to mate. Uh, well, they do need one a partner once. They, they mate once, and then that supplies them for their entire lifespan. They store up the the uh, the male seed, and then just can reimpregnate themselves every month. And then, of course, cockroaches, being such incredibly skillful beings. They don't suffer from genetic in, inter, interbreeding. So with from one, one pregnant female, you can get like uh, about 125,000 cockroaches in six months. So that's why we realize we better get serious. <laughs> so we have these, this, uh, this kind of meeting point of how do, you, how do you live harmoniously in the world. And also... You know, in, in cultures like Bali, um, and also in this place, in America, Native American peoples, um, who are, it, it's very um, uh, prominent in the way that people relate to Native American culture. Uh, and again, like the Balinese, the many, in many Native American languages, there's no word for religion. There's no word for spirituality. Because it's, like, it's inconceivable like that it's, it could be another thing separate from life. So there's plenty of taking of life amongst uh, tribal peoples. In Bali, they are not vegetarians. <laughs> so that the, the taking of life, um, even though there is a profound respect for life, um, then there is also the taking of life when uh, you know, the, the situation demands it. So... The, in a way, the question is, you know, the, how do you find that point? One of the beautiful things, uh, what would you, how do you find the point of when it's appropriate to take life or not take life? How do you, how do you choose? 
And it's also the whole, I mean, there's many doctors in this room, the whole slew of ethical issues about you know, when to pull the plug, when not to pull the plug, what is a living being, when is a person alive, when they're not alive, and so on. So these are deep uh, ethical issues for us as human beings because we have a, a moral sense, we have an innate moral sense as a human being. So the, the, the heart is concerned about what is right, what is the, the, um, the pure-hearted thing to do. So that the, um, we, we tend to approach these, these issues by trying to come up with the right plan. We, we, we're a very ideal, idealistic, ideological culture. So we want to have like the, the map that says, this is the right thing to do. You know, in situation A, <laughs> variant B33G, then do this. And, uh, and we like that. We like to have kind of formulas tidy. We like to know what to do. And then, um, or, or at least be told by an authority that you have to do this. And then it, or at least that relieves us of the responsibility. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was hoping you could do that. <laughs> <laughs> so we feel relieved. But in a way, what's, what's more helpful for us is um, rather than... than uh, say, trying to find an idea or a plan or a form, trying to find a, you know, an external authority who will take the rap for you. Um, there's a different way. Uh, there's a different way. And it really kind of goes to the very core of spiritual practice. And this is, uh, in, in the simplest of terms, this is the middle way. What the, the middle way is something that you know, a two-year-old can understand, but also it takes you know, 84,000 lifetimes as a bodhisattva to really get to the bottom of what the middle way is. It's both extraordinarily simple and extraordinarily deep. So what this means is that the middle way is holding these um, situations, like holding within one's heart you know, where you are, what you are, who you are, where you're with. It's a kind of deep listening, attending to the situation that we experience when we open our senses and we attend to where we are. It's like what we receive in, in the moment. Listening to, attending to that very deeply. And the problem with, with dilemmas is that we, we always try to solve them. You know, we think, okay, there's this question and it needs its answer. Once it's got its answer, then it'll be complete. And then I will know, I will be sure. That's the, the normal way that we deal with doubt. But as Voltaire once said, doubt might be an uncomfortable condition, but certainty is ridiculous. (laughs) So we don't like doubt, and we spend a lot of money and a lot of time and a lot of energy keeping all the doubts and uncertainties out. And we we do this a lot by by, uh, creating opinions, creating ideologies, and hanging on to them, taking refuge in them. But really to, to, uh, to find that middle way, to get to the place of, of freedom. You know, freedom is not a matter of, of, of having a, uh, a, to- a complete collection of game plans, the entire set that will tell you what to do in every situation. What, the, what it's pointing us to is, say, that when we are confronted with a dilemma, when there appears a dichotomy or a dilemma in our life, then 
it's like going to the, what we do to, uh, to resolve that is first of all resist the temptation to solve the dilemma with an answer. This is the whole basis of koan practice in, in, in Rinzai Zen. Like you deliberately ask, ask yourself impossible questions so that the mind will be driven to this state. So that you, you, are, you go to the place where, in, in short, you have to drop the question. Because what happens is, like, say, say this clock is a doubt, okay? To gas or not to gas? To, uh, to exterminate or not to exterminate? What should we do? So then, you know, that, that we get so close to the question, we can't see around it. So we see that the entire, the entire universe has been shrunk to this one issue. And we, we say, is it left or is it right? Which is the right one? I want to make the right choice. So we've narrowed the whole thing down to this tiny little picture. So instead, what, what this kind of uh, listening is intending to do is like stepping back from that and realizing, oh, a doubt is just a doubt. A dilemma is just a dilemma. Whether to, whether to be um, fierce or whether to be kind, whether to be gentle. You know, that this is... Uh, just two possibilities in, a, in an infinite ocean of possibilities. And so that uh, as we, we kind of let the, the, the question appear in consciousness, just kind of let it hover there in the space of the mind, you realize it's a question. And as soon as we have been drawn into uh, its logic, like that says, this is, the, this is the, the, the most important thing in the universe. Once you get the, the, the missing piece, then you'll be happy. Ever seen Shel Silverstein's book, The Missing Piece? It's very profound philosophy. Because we think once we get the missing piece, then everything will be okay. And even though we've done this like 10,000 million times, and it's still not quite okay, <laughs> that's how we get, we get drawn in to the logic of the question. We believe, we take the question at face value, we go into its story, we believe it. Everything else gets shut out. So then, I've often told the, uh, the, the uh, anecdote of a monk I used to share the office with. We used to run Amravati Monastery in England together. And I couldn't work out how, how come it was whenever people came to us with problems, it was always me that ended up having to solve them or taking responsibility for doing something. <laughs> yeah. How come? We're both here. We're both in the same room. How come when someone comes in and says, oh, we need to change the felt on the roof, we need to empty the water tank, we need to cut the grass, we need to organize a meeting. And then by the time they left the room, it was always me that was in action. And I, I, I began to question, how does this happen? How does he do this? Why is it always me? And then I began to, to notice that when someone came in the room and said, we need to change the felt on the, on the roof, um, who is it that's going to look after it? And then, whereas I would say, oh, well, I guess uh, Lee could take care of it. You know, I'll, maybe I'll, I'll talk to him about it. The other monk would say, good question. <laughs> and then I began to notice that he did that all the time. Whenever anyone came, in whatever state they were in, whenever they came at him, it was like, oh, good question. <laughs> so this is what to do when the mind gets strung in this kind of dilemma. Or what to do, how to act. Uh, to first of all just say, oh, good question. 
And then the ego says, but I want to know. No, I've got to know. I've got to decide. I've got, I've got, I've got a schedule to keep. Places to go. I've got stress to, <laughs> to enact. I've got to honor my stress. <laughs> and so, then you say, oh, thank you for sharing. <laughs> so, fundamentally, leaving space around the question. And then what happens is that when we, when we drop the question, we just let the question be a question. We realize that the question is actually entire already. It is a complete thing. It was just telling you that it was incomplete. But that very statement of saying, good question, actually, is said, oh, this is a question. Yeah, this is one way of picking up the vast, infinite fabric of the universe that we can all experience right now. You can bundle it in a certain package, peel it in a certain way, arrange it, and then it says, question. But you don't have to pick it up. You might never have an answer. There might be a whole 10,000 different ways of regarding the same situation. So when we just say, good question, and we let the question just be there, what happens then is that the heart can open to the whole uh, situation, the whole uh, quality of the living world of mind and, and the universe without being cluttered. Now the heart, uh, your heart is the heart of the universe. The mind of the universe is your mind. You can take this on trust if you like. <laughs> I would like to suggest that the heart of the universe is your heart. That, that when we talk about Dharma, that the Dharma that is you is not, that it's not like you being one, becoming you. Know, it's not a matter of like becoming one with nature. It's like try getting away from it. Your heart, the nature of your mind, is the nature of all minds. The nature of your heart is the nature of, of the universe. That the Dharma doesn't kind of begin and end in different places. Everything is of the nature of Dharma. So that in this situation, what we're doing is we're kind of, cons- we're, we're kind of tapping into mission control. Or like, if you like, the, the mainframe, if you like, probably better. So that you're going to the, to the mainframe which is wired in to the entire net, the, the, the net of the universe. So when you, we stop obsessing on the little question, and then we open the heart to the, to the, the, the present, then, uh, and then we, we uh, are then more attuned to what the situation is, what demand, what is, what is possible, than, the, than logic or reason or any game plan could ever allow. Because your heart is intrinsically connected to everything. The Dharma, which is our nature, is, it's, is absolutely... I mean, even connected is not the right word. I feel kind of wrong in saying it. Because it's not, it's not connected, it is it. <laughs> it isn't connected, it is it. So that when we consult the heart, when we, we kind of open up the heart, and then we listen, then what we find is the middle way. Then there's this a quality of knowing a quality of, or you can call it intuitive wisdom, that says, you know, go forward, stand still, go back, go right. Yes, it's sad about the cockroaches, but if they stay, then the monastery goes. Yeah, environmental health comes in, takes one look, game over. Move out. <laughs> so, 
Uh, it's not as though that the ideologies and the moral issues and the, and the standards of precepts and things are not important. There are ways that we can kind of get in the, in the region or give us some kind of idea. But fundamentally, if we want to be able to live harmoniously uh, in the world, harmoniously with other beings, and find the quality of freedom, not kind of burdened by endless terrible decisions I have to make all day long, every day. Like, that if we, if instead we really fi- learn to find this middle, uh, then no matter what situations are arising, the different um, issues, then if we find that, that we can draw upon that source, it's, and it's always here. You can't lose it because you are it. <laughs> it's always there if we draw upon it. And then that uh, will guide us. And also because it's a completely non, uh, non-egoic quality. It's nothing to do with self. It's nothing to do with being female or male or young or old or English or American or uh, whatever. It's a completely universal impersonal quality. So what that means is that that when something arises like, oh, go forward, it's not like, I've now made the right decision. I'm sure I've got it right now. And Because as, as soon as you say that, like certainty is ridiculous, it's also painful. Because as soon as the, the ego grabs it and says, I have decided, I'm sure this is the right thing, there's a little voice that says, maybe not. So that it's like the fear that it's not going to work. So when we, we pick up things guided by the Dharma, uh, following the middle way, then what happens is that the, what arises is a quality of, oh, let's try this and see what happens. This has the, the feel of, oh, this looks like the way forward. Okay, take a couple of steps, see what happens. Where do we go? And if it works, it's not like, oh, great, look at me, I made it. This was a real successful project, successful decision. It worked. It's like, uh-huh. Oh, well, that went well. Okay, let's see what happens now. And then if it all falls apart and, and, and it's, a, it's a kind of disaster and doesn't work, and it's rather than, oh my God, I'm, I'm a total failure. What are they going to think of me? You know, they're going to find out. They're going to know. I'm such an idiot. I'm so hopeless. They're going to know I'm a fake. It's like, uh-huh. Well, that didn't work. Okay. So what next? Where from here? It's a whole completely different way of relating to uh, issues of decision-making. And this isn't just a kind of uh, mind game. I mean, this actually is really useful, (laughs) moment by moment, day by day. Uh, um, Like I was saying, the the, the middle way is, in a way, something that a two-year-old can understand in talking about you know, knowing the right amount and things, and being um, sensitive to others and sensitive to things. But it's so deep because it really also revolves around um, the whole quality of our nature. Like, what are we? We seem to be these separate people gathered in this room, and, and Julie and I are sitting up here, and, and you're sitting out there, and we're the speakers, and you're the audience. And, and that, you know, that seems like it's kind of got a viable... <laughs> There's a case to be made for that, right? You know, you could, you could say that's what's happening. But then when we start going to that place where we, we realize our, what our nature is, if we realize that inside is Dharma, outside is Dharma, you know, that 
This is, it shifts the whole way that we relate to ourselves and others. So the whole issue of, of loving kindness, or the whole, and, and hatred on the one hand, and then loving kindness. We begin to see that, that okay, getting, getting past the hatred element is the first piece. Where like, there is definitely other, and they shouldn't be. <laughs> then we get to the point where we say, well, wait a minute. <laughs> you mean there's one wrong thing in the entire universe? There's one thing in the universe that shouldn't be the way it is, and it's him. <laughs> but hang on, that doesn't sound quite right. So we begin to see that you know, hatred really has no footing. But then even when we, we get to the place of loving kindness, then we, and, and loving kindness, not in, in terms of, of liking everything, because metta doesn't mean making us like everything. Um, that's... Uh, kind of a Walt Disney universe, where everything is completely likable. You know, even Cruella de Vil is kind of cute, <laughs> in her own way. Metta means not dwelling in aversion. It's the heart that recognizes everything belongs. There is no thing in the universe, could be, which, mental or physical, which does not belong. So it's like the heart which does not shut out anything. So, but then loving kindness, still, it, uh, if it's me practicing loving kindness towards all beings, there's a me here and, a, and, a, and all beings out there. And so it's considerably more beneficial and, and wholesome. If I was sitting here practicing hatred towards all of you, there'd be a different vibe <laughs> that we'd be experiencing than if I was practicing loving kindness. But if I still think I'm here talking to you as a fundamental reality, then there's still alienation going on. There's still dukkha. When I first started uh, teaching retreats, in somewhere in the 80s, <laughs> I experienced a lot of, uh, of anxiety and the kind of desire for success. And I, I was kind of thrown in at the deep end, quite new to this business. I was uh, 26 when I led my first 10-day retreat. So I was kind of green. So I, I really wanted to succeed, and I was really, uh, you know, frightened of making a fool of myself or not 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 doing well. And one uh, one evening, about halfway through the second ten day retreat that I was leading, and I was sort of trying to prepare and not prepare the Dharma talk because <laughs> we don't we we talk kind of extemporaneously usually. So I was pre- trying to prepare and not prepare which is a very difficult duality to, <laughs> to wade through. And I suddenly realized that, you know, they is almost like the enemy. Like, they are the people who have to be pleased, and it's my job to please them and inspire them and do the right thing. And, and it's like this incredible kind of uh, struggle going on. And I, and I just thought the words, it's, maybe if I just think of it as, me spending 10 days in the country with a few friends rather than me having to teach them. Uh, and it's like, poof, the whole thing just fell to pieces. Oh, look at that. So what the, the practice of insight draws us to and the realization of Dharma is drawing us to is that place where loving kindness doesn't apply. Where when you, rec- when you re- really recognize that, that um, 
that in almost also saying things like there's only one of us or we're all one is also kind of a bit facile and not quite it. It's it's like the any kind of um, inkling of an idea that uh, there could be any sort of basic separation or duality, uh, you know, falls to pieces. So that loving kindness becomes insignificant, becomes immaterial, because who is there here to send out loving kindness to who out there? You know, when, when the, there's a real recognition of, of emptiness, of the selfless nature of us, then uh, in a way, you, you, from the outside, it looks like unconditional love. From the inside, there's a rec- recognition of um, there really isn't any individual here or any out there. <laughs> You're a minute early. There's nobody there. (laughs) (laughs) So that uh, as soon as the the brain picks that up, and then we start going around trying to sort of evaporate each other. It doesn't work. So it's actually, it's not a practice of perception. We're not rearranging the perceptions. We're not trying to go going to your husband and saying, you know, you don't exist. <laughs> or going to your, your seven-year-old and saying, Sophie, we have to have a little talk. <laughs> you don't actually exist, you know. <laughs> this is the brain picking it up and trying to scramble the perceptions. It's not a, it's not a change of perception. It's a, a change of heart, really. And so that in, that in that kind of change of heart, the entire way in which we, we hold experience shifts. And that there's like the, the practice then becomes uh, a, an ongoing non-creation of yourself or others. And when we stop creating each other, when we stop, say, making the, ourselves or others kind of solid, or, or um, permanent, you know, discrete individuals, like on the heart level, like as a as a kind of um, a realization of uh, like whenever an attempt to call, you know, to create someone or to to think of yourself doing that, I'm like this and she's like that and he's this way. It's like it's like the heart receives that that impulse and then just illuminates it, shines light of wisdom through it. So then you, you meet it with, oh, maybe so. Yeah. Thank you for sharing. <laughs> and then in that, in that illumination, the, the heart is, is uh, filled. And then what looks like compassion or loving kindness springs forth. What looks like equanimity or, or mudita Sympathetic joy springs forth according to circumstance, but it's not like me deciding to practice loving kindness to you today. It's like you know, how many units does Julie does, you know, is appropriate for Julie? You know, three, you know, three quarters compassion, you know, an eighth, 
equanimity, little shot of mudita, and then top it off with, you know, the sort of fill up the rest with metta, you know, that should do it. The heart knows exactly how to dispose itself in, in any situation. And that uh, the, so that in a way the, the kind of fulfillment of the practice of, of uh, loving kindness and the other Brahma Viharas, compassion, sympathetic joy, equanimity, serenity, is that uh, they're fulfilled through this realization of of, uh, of emptiness. You know, you can call it wholeness, whatever you like. Is that? But that, like, finding the note of the middle way, like finding the perfect pitch of the universe, uh, attuning the 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 ear of our heart to that pitch, and then stay there. Say <laughs> <laughs> like three minutes early. It's a miracle. It's a miracle. <laughs> All things are impermanent. Please. Uh, uh, Enjoy making your way down to receive your children who are in the lower meditation hall in case you don't know where they are. (laughs) Sweet dreams. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.